The reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, starting in verse 8. The angel, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of our Lord. I did mention um, that Dan had given us some long announcements. There's one announcement that he forgot to include. You, you can go to the ECC website to find it. Um, it's an announcement for volunteers. It's a sign-up for those who wish to be volunteers. And at the top of the announcement, it says, Volunteers for those who want to suffer. Okay, it's a joke. It's not really there. Maybe you think signing up as a volunteer is a form of suffering, but that's not the point. Suppose, honestly, there was such a sign-up on the ECC website. Sign up here if you want to suffer. I guarantee you there are very few, if any, who would sign up. Why? Because we're experts at avoiding suffering. We have all kinds of money. We have all kinds of medicines. We have all kinds of diversions. And at any cost, we do our best to avoid suffering. And that's understandable, right? None of us really wants to suffer unless you happen to be a sadomasochist, which is you want to inflict pain on yourself or pleasure which is an odd psychological reality. But some people are there. For the most of us, we're not that. We don't want suffering. There may be times where we think, well, suffering would be a good idea. If I suffered, for instance, on behalf of another, so that that person didn't have to experience suffering, perhaps you'd sign up for that. Or maybe... Maybe you would actually believe for some reason that suffering itself was a good. Why might you think that? You might think that because you link suffering to attaining a goal. As a matter of fact, if you want to get in shape, if you really want to get in shape, you're going to have to go through a little bit of suffering. If after an injury or a surgery, you go to a famous physical therapist like Steve Wiley, he's going to make you hurt, okay? 
He's going to make you suffer in order to grow in your body. So to that extent, we might say suffering is a good thing. Or maybe, maybe you have a, a very high view of suffering that goes something like this. If I suffer in my body, it will actually help my soul. Now, you might think I'm referring to a Christian doctrine. To a certain extent, yes, but not really. That doctrine has existed for years, at least since the Greeks and Greek philosophy, that the idea of suffering could be a good if it actually enhanced the morality or endurance of the soul. This is a sermon about the church at Smyrna. And in order to even consider the letter to the church at Smyrna, you have to focus on suffering. Because this church knew what suffering was all about. And the writer of the book of Revelation praised them for their endurance in the midst of suffering. Before we take a look at some of the things that they might have gone through, let's remember where Smyrna is. Or perhaps for some of you, see where Smyrna is for the first time. In this slide, which is the western part of what is now Turkey, then Asia Minor, you will see that little red dot out there in the ocean. That's the Isle of Patmos. That's where John wrote this book of Revelation. And about 30 miles across the water, you could get to land and then to Ephesus. As a matter of fact, some people consider this to be an ancient mail route from Ephesus up to Pergama and back down to Laodicea with other cities included. Last week we talked about Ephesus, which obviously was the closest point to John when he wrote the book of Revelation and delivered the letter. Now, whoever delivered this letter to the churches, and undoubtedly there was only one, a parchment of very importance, great importance, this person journeyed straight north about 30 miles to Smyrna. As a matter of fact, Smyrna, for the most part, is the only city of the seven mentioned in the book of Revelation that remains in modern time. I mean in terms of a big city. I actually was in Ephesus. There's something there. I didn't visit Smyrna. But if I had, I would have said, man, Ephesus doesn't even compare to Smyrna. Because Smyrna now is actually a very large and important city in Turkey. It's the second largest in that country. If you were to go to Smyrna by road, you would probably have been on a Roman road. But if you had sailed to Smyrna, you would have encountered in Smyrna a beautiful harbor. This is a rendition of what Smyrna might have looked like back then. Notice those stairs, what appear to be stairs. That's part of the stadium. Notice as you go out, there's a harbor. It's almost a complete circle. And the entrance to the harbor is very narrow. That was especially important for people in Smyrna because that narrow harbor helped them to defend themselves. As a matter of fact, routinely when the city was attacked, they would put a huge chain 
across the harbor so the ships could not enter. A strategic plan in battle. Smyrna was a great city. As a matter of fact, it not only had a huge, beautiful harbor, it had a thing called an agora, which was a gathering area for the people who were there during Roman times, sort of an open market. You can see those pillars which held up a roof uh, where the agora was. Underneath this agora, there's another picture that gives you an idea of how elaborate a structure these ancient cities put together. That's the basement of the Agora. Only one part of the basement of the Agora. It's a majestic structure. This place, Smyrna, was a great town. As a matter of fact, it was a town that rivaled and had a competition with Ephesus. Think about great cities and their competitions now. For instance, if you think about great cities and their sports competitions Maybe it's because I'm a baseball guy. My mind goes immediately to the Yankees and to the Red Sox, to Boston and New York. They have a long history of competition in terms of their own greatness, whether it's a sports team or anything else. Imagine Ephesus and Smyrna being like this, competition between Boston and New York. That was the rivalry. As a matter of fact, um, Smyrna was called the crown of Asia. What you couldn't see in any of those photographs was behind it was a circle of hills. Actually, something of a hill range or even a small mountain range behind it. And behind the city itself, there was sort of a half circle that went around like this. And as a part of that half circle, there were spectacular buildings and temples that were lit at night and golden during the day. And between the two main temples, there was literally a road, a street of gold. That's why many people who were historians call it the jewel of Asia. It was like a crown of glory. Asia was known for advancements in medicine, advancements in economic prosperity. It was also known, you know, I'm a sports guy, I have to throw this in. It was also known as being famous for the Olympics because the first boxing match in the Olympics was won by a champion from Smyrna. It was a very diverse, very interesting city. But in the middle of that city was a small group of Christians. And as beautiful as the city was, it wasn't so beautiful for them. Because they were the focal point of persecution and suffering. John says, I want to commend you for your faith. I also want to acknowledge something. You're an impoverished group of people. So imagine this glorious city and the people who lived on the lowest echelon of society. Those were the Christians. We're not quite sure exactly why they were on the lower echelons of society, but we suspect, among other reasons, that they were targeted. 
as people who were a part of a cult. And the rest of the people in Smyrna would not trade with Christian traders, storekeepers, or anything else. They made their way in spite of their poverty. And John says to them, almost repeating the words of Jesus. Can you hear it ringing in your ears? He says, even though you are poor, you are rich. In your poverty, I see richness. Or to put it in the words of Jesus, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Another translation says, blessed are those who are poor. Because they're going to inherit the kingdom of God. You're special. In the midst of your suffering, you are actually rich. He also acknowledges something else. There's a lot of slander around you. People are slandering you routinely. As a matter of fact, there is a synagogue in Smyrna that is not the synagogue of God. It's a synagogue of Satan. They're Jews who call themselves Jews, but they're not Jews. What we know is there was rampant persecution of the Christians by certain members of the Jewish population. Not just in Smyrna, but in other places. By the way, some historians, critics of the church, and theologians have kind of well, they tried to write this one off. Sort of to ignore that statement. Because to them it seems offensive. You're blaming the Jews for persecution. The difficult reality is it was a historical fact. Routinely, first century Jews persecuted Christians. We've got to acknowledge the truth. But then, my friends, we have to acknowledge something else. That when Christians came into power, unfortunately, Christians have persecuted the Jews. But the reality in Smyrna was that the Jewish population was apparently persecuting the Christians. I understand, he says, your dilemma. You're being persecuted by those who say they're followers of God. And they're not. Or else they wouldn't be persecuting you. He goes on to say, there is suffering coming your way. You're going to suffer for ten days in prison. Much like the other numbers in the book of Revelation, this is symbolic. There is no way to track it to 10, 24-hour days historically where it happened and then it was over. This was a symbol that they were going to suffer for a period of time. Compared to a thousand years, 10 days didn't seem like much, but they were going to suffer. As a matter of fact, he implies And we know from history that death was inevitable for some of them just because they were Christ followers. In that very city, one of the most famous martyrs was executed. His name was Polycarp. 
and he was the bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp was 80-plus years old when he was taken into captivity, having gone into isolation because he heard the news that he was about ready to be captured. From what we know, and we don't know a lot, it seemed like a slave that knew Polycarp well also knew where he was. And under persecution, he cracked. And he let out the location for Polycarp, and the soldiers went to get him. On the way to his execution, the Roman commander tried to talk him out of his own death. He had a lot of respect for Polycarp, especially for his age and his piety. And he said, what what difference would it make? Can't you just say Jesus is cursed and not believe it and move on and save your life? Polycarp would hear nothing of it. As a matter of fact, he was placed on this, this stake where people were burned. And people from all over the city brought out the wood to burn him. And he, he said, I have one request. Please don't tie me up like you usually do. Let me stand here and go through the flames because my Lord will be with me. They granted him his request. Polycarp stood in the flames, sang and prayed out loud as he was burned to death. John says, you're going to suffer. And I want to commend you for that suffering. You know, the, the story of suffering is all over the New Testament. If you want to do a, a search sometime, you might be stunned how often the theme of suffering that you see in this small passage emerges in the New Testament. My friends, it's everywhere. And I'm not going to give you every reference this morning, but I, I do want to remind you of some themes that were a part of the life of Christians. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, at the end of the Beatitudes, the blessings, he says, blessed are you when people persecute you. When people persecute you, you are blessed. Because they're persecuting you just like they did the prophets before you. Blessed are you. Jesus also says in John chapter 15, which John, the writer of the book of Revelation, would have known well. They persecuted you. And the reason they're going to persecute you is because they persecuted me. In other words, you can't sign up for this Christ-following thing, says Jesus, without following me into persecution. In Acts chapter 5, we, we hear a story, which is one of many, 
of the early apostles being persecuted by the religious authorities, sometimes beaten, sometimes put in prison, sometimes just called before the council and commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus. And on one occasion, Peter and John were before the council, commanded not to preach. Finally, they were released, and they went back to their fellow believers. And you read these words in Acts chapter 5. We are amazed and thankful and overjoyed to count ourselves worthy for such an honor as suffering for Jesus. That was our attitude. It wasn't strike out against those who persecute me. It wasn't de-establish the Roman Empire and overthrow it. It wasn't kill the Jews who have persecuted me. It was, I find it a great honor to suffer for Jesus. It goes on in Paul's epistles several times. He speaks about suffering. And he actually says in this wonderful passage in Philippians chapter 3, he says, everything that I counted as a gain in my life, my, my righteous achievements, I just count all of it like rubbish now compared to knowing Christ. And what does it mean to know Christ? You might ask. Paul tells you, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. There's some sense in which suffering brings us into deep fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's the perspective in the New Testament. He goes on to say a remarkably similar and even more severe statement concerning suffering. He said, I I count it a privilege in Colossians chapter 1 verse 24, to suffer with you and on your behalf because in my suffering, I fill up, it's a strange phrase, I fill up in my body what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. Surely he must have meant the body of Christ in Christ's sufferings. That's what the New Testament, in short, says about persecution, suffering. But it's not the only kind of suffering that the New Testament addresses. As a matter of fact, just general suffering in the body. Suffering because of circumstances. Suffering because of the harshness of life. All those things are said to be good in some measure for us as Christ followers. Remember these words in Romans chapter 5? I want you to know, he says, suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, it produces character. And character, 
it produces hope in the one who suffered for us. Another time, Paul speaking of suffering, a suffering he didn't even understand, a suffering that came out of nowhere, a suffering that he asked God to take away. Let's be honest. That thorn in the flesh that Paul had, that mysterious thing, he really didn't want it. And he said, God, take it away. And God said, no. And Paul said, now I understand it. Here's what I understand. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. For when I am weak in this suffering, then I am strong. There's another passage, the last one I refer to as it relates to particular passages on suffering in the New Testament. Consider it, the book of James says, pure joy when you face trials of many kind. Consider it pure joy. Really? It might have been easier if James had said, endure suffering like a good soldier because you know what it means. But he he took it a level up, didn't he? He didn't just say stick it out. He said, consider it pure joy. Because the trying of your faith, of course, produces maturity. And you'll be mature because of your suffering, lacking nothing. So finally, what's what's the purpose of all this divine suffering? Well, first, we know historically that suffering produces growth in the church. It's not just in the book of Acts. It's in the history of the church everywhere. The blood of the martyrs are seeds of the church, as the famous saying goes. We also know that suffering serves to encourage and embolden other believers. Paul said that in Philippians. He said, my suffering is encouraging to you. Your suffering is encouraging to me. It goes in a bilateral fashion. Because when we see one another suffer for Christ, we're encouraged in our faith. We know, according to Hebrews, that one of the divine purposes of suffering is it deepens our faith. And it actually produces a harvest of righteousness. We know from Second Corinthians 1, That suffering actually increases our ability to trust God. Haven't you experienced that? When things are tough? Your ability to trust God in the midst of the difficulty actually increases. Paul even says that suffering increases our love for Christ. There's one more thing that suffering does that is mentioned in this passage. When we have a proper perspective on suffering, our whole world is transformed. The reality that is right in front of us, which seems only material, becomes spiritual. 
And everything is reinterpreted because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says, for those of you who endure suffering, there is a crown of life. There is no second death. In spite of the fact he could have said if he'd known, in spite of the fact that your pastor Polycarp is going to die in the flames, it's only the first death, and he will inherit eternal life and a crown of righteousness. And that is true for all of you who suffer in Christ. You see, this is the difference between Greek philosophy and the goodness of suffering making your soul better. This is to say, says John in the rest of the New Testament, that this suffering actually is part of the process that produces eternal life. That this suffering makes sense because the body, as we know it, will pass away. And in the resurrected body, we will inherit eternal life. That's why this suffering seems to be so harsh sometimes, but when we have an eternal perspective, we realize that it's fleeting and there's something about it that actually is good. That's a Christian response to suffering. I know some of you have, in my hearing, suffered tremendously in your lives. Maybe you wouldn't describe it as persecution. Maybe you just would describe it as suffering. If Jesus would hear, he would say, blessed are you. If John were here, he would say, bless you. Because you're going to inherit a crown of righteousness. I also know in a different kind of way, Not so much persecution, but we've all suffered, haven't we, for the last few months. Our life's been turned upside down. Nothing's normal. I can't see any of your faces. And I want to see the smile or the frown or or something that speaks of you. And I miss it. We miss it. We're going through a period of suffering. You know how hard it is for me to stand outside after worship and greet you at a distance with a mask on? I don't want to do that. I want to shake your hand or give you a hug. But I can't. And neither can you. And it's a measure of suffering. There's some of you watching this right now who have not been out since March. And you fear that you can't go out because you're afraid of what might happen for any number of reasons. Or you're frustrated 
that going out means you've got to wear one of these masks. It's, it's really a form of suffering. Compared to, of course, the suffering that we hear about in the book of Revelations, it's rather mild. It's an annoyance. But life circumstances make us feel like we suffer. So what's our response to this, which is a mild suffering compared to others? What's our response or what our response ought to be? Three things. This is going to be the hardest one to do. In the midst of suffering, say this, Lord, I thank you for this suffering. Remember, sign-up sheet? If you signed that fictitious sheet, my recommendation would be to say, Lord, thanks for the suffering. The second thing, Lord, please make me gracious during the suffering. Don't let me lash out at others for my circumstances or become bitter. Lord, make me gracious in the midst of the suffering. And third, Lord, what are you trying to teach me through this suffering? There's something there that God's teaching us. We're not the church of Smyrna. I'm actually happy we aren't. But we do have our own measure of suffering. And God will be with us, and we can respond this way. Will you pray with me? Lord, you have been gracious to um, be with us in the midst of perplexing circumstances, even in the midst of suffering and sometimes in the midst of persecution for some of us. And we thank you for your presence. But we pray as we walk through these weeks that are ahead of us, that when we encounter difficulties, we will thank you for them. That when we feel as though we're suffering, we will have a gracious attitude. And as we walk through it, we will ask the question, Lord, what are you trying to teach me as I follow you? Thank you, Lord. In the name of Christ, amen.